Good morning, everyone. Welcome to OT with DA. I'm not sure if it's morning where you are, but it's morning where I am. And uh, it's Sabbath where I am. So happy Sabbath. If it's uh, Sabbath wherever you are, hope you're having a great day. 7.30 in the morning here. Welcome. We are in chapter, let's see, 53? 54. Chapter 54. We're taking a look today at the life of Samson, well-known Bible story. I suppose if you just stopped people, you know, on the street in America or even Australia and other places where there is at least some familiarity with the Bible and you said, hey, have you ever heard of the story of Samson? And you might have to remind them the, the man that was very strong, had long hair. I think a lot of people would know this story. And uh, it's a really, really sad story. Terribly sad. Almost unreadably sad. And so we're going to be taking a look at that story this morning. Welcome, everybody. Great to see you. Fennec and for more than this. Oh, I like that. For more than this. Hello, Linda. Hello, Deb. Hello, A Marvelous Life 721. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Chuck. Hello, Holmes Home. Hello, Mrs. Universe Queen. Wow. I like it. That's a, that's an ambitious Instagram handle. I am Mrs. Universe Queen. I'd like to meet you. I'd like to meet all of you. All right. Hello, Denise. Hello, Naomi. Hello, Marco. Oh, somebody says, yay, see you at church. All right. Yeah, I am preaching this morning. Morning, Scott. Good morning, Karen. Shirley. M something. A Blue Zone Life. Oh, I like that too. There's some good titles on here, some good Instagram handles. Though I, I have to say that my favorite is just, just your name. <laughs> uh, no offense. I just like it when I'm dealing with, you know, somebody that I actually know what their name is. It's one of the things that drives me a little crazy about social media on not so much Instagram, but some Instagram, but especially like Twitter, where you're just dealing with like bunny rabbit 321 or whatever it is. You're like, who is this person? Is this a real person? Oh, man. Hello, everyone. So glad you're here. We are on, uh, let's see, I don't know what day it is, but we're in chapter 54 of OT with DA. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to today. I've got a big day ahead of me, OT with DA, and then I've got to get ready for my sermon. I'm still undecided about what sermon I'm going to preach. I, I think I'm narrowing it down, but I'm going to spend some time in prayer after OT with DA uh, this morning and see if I really feel settled about it. So. Hope you had a good night's rest or wherever you are. If you're in America right now, it's the middle of the afternoon. So welcome. <laughs> All right. Uh, today we are looking at chapter 54, the chapter on Samson. There was something else I was going to tell you. What was that? Hmm. Oh, yesterday's video is, is uploading very slowly. And I don't know exactly why this is. The internet here maybe is slow, but the first video uploaded quite quickly. So um, yesterday's video, the early judges, uh, is still uploading. I went to sleep last night and it was at like 50%. I woke up and just checked it and it's like at 64%. So 14% through the whole night. I don't know what's going on there, but all of the videos that I record here on Instagram live are eventually uploaded to my YouTube channel. And, um, please check them out. If you ever miss a live, they're available there. And you can, yeah, they're, they're going to be there forever, God willing, and you can read this um, at any point. And that's one of the things I really like about this. If we were only doing the Instagram Lives, 
It's not as inviting to people a month from now, a year from now, several years from now to, to go back and, and walk through, whether it's Desire of Ages or Prophets and Kings, which we haven't yet done, Patriarchs and Prophets. So welcome, everybody. I'm really pumped about this morning's... Actually, I didn't love this morning. I don't love anything in the book of Judges. Okay, I do think I've got a really great word. In fact, this is maybe my word that I'm the most excited about in in any word that we've done in OT with DA up to this point. I, I think it's, again, I don't want to say the right word, but for me, it perfectly captures what I was feeling and gathering from this chapter. Because I'm on a new routine, a new rhythm here, what I'm doing is I'm reading the chapter at night just before I go to bed. It's literally the last thing I do. And then when I wake up in the morning, it's the first thing I do. And what I what I like about that is that I feel like my brain is processing it even in the night when I'm sleeping so that when I wake up, a lot of these ideas are fresh. Like literally, I woke up this morning and the very first thought that I had this morning was just a continuation of the last thought that I had last night. And so, yeah, I'm getting into this new rhythm. I like it. I hope you guys like it. We'll be back again tomorrow, same time, same place. We're just going to go with this until it, yeah, until further notice. This is working really well for me. So glad you guys are all here. We are going to be in, let's see, Judges chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Read that again this morning. Read it in the NIV, which let me just turn there. Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. As I said at the outset there, the, the story of Samson is a familiar story, right? Like it's a story that's um, well-known, reasonably popular. It's, it's something that I think a lot of people would be aware of. And I think that people would, would be inclined to think, oh yeah, this is, this is how God works. God gives people supernatural strength. He enables them to do these you know, amazing feats of physical strength and of violence. Let's be honest, it's a very violent section in Israel, uh, a very violent chapter in Israel's history, and this is a very violent chapter. And so I, I think that people that don't have the sort of broader read on the text of Scripture and how God relates to strength and how God relates to conquest, they might just, if this was all they knew, they might say, oh, so this is kind of how God works. He gives people incredible strength so that he can slay people, massacre them, slaughter them, but for those of us that are familiar with the text of Scripture and the narrative trajectory of Scripture, and even what we've been doing here in OT with DA, we know that this is a sharp deviation away from God's plan, right? Like this, this is like not plan B. We're like well down the line here. We're like on plan Y, Z, X. And yet even in these radical departures or deviations from God's original intent and plan, God works with what he's given. And, and that's one of the key ideas here. Hey, Johnny, great to see you. Great to see you, Johnny. When, when I woke up this morning I uh, and, and I just turned on Instagram, the, the post that came up was a beautiful sunset post, uh, a picture that you had taken. I don't know where you were, somewhere in Europe. So anyway, blessings on you, brother. Love you. Um, so anyway, I, I just sometimes wonder like how... How do people think about story? People who are unfamiliar with the larger flow and trajectory of Scripture, what do they think is going on here with Samson? And I suppose they would, most of them, think, oh yeah, this is how, this is God's modus operandi. This is God's plan, right? Give people supernatural strength. Oh, you're in Paris. Okay, all right. Uh, 
Give people supernatural strength so they can utterly slay the enemies. Well, to, to state the obvious, when we get to the full, consummate revelation of God to humanity in Christ, we don't see him picking up you know, the jawbone of a donkey and indiscriminately slaying the enemies of God. So if that's not what we see in Jesus, and Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, then we need to be very measured, very careful, and very contextual how we understand these stories that are departures upon departures upon departures upon departures from God's plan. This is God working with what he's got, and to be honest, what he's got is not a lot, right? Like, the book of Judges is summarized really in the phrase that occurs many times in the book of Judges, that there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And, and not just a king in the David sense or the Solomonic sense or the first king of Israel, Saul sense, but God was no longer the king in Israel, right? Idolatry is creeping in, intermarriage is creeping in, and so people are just doing, you know, relativistically and pluralistically whatever they think is right in a given context and situation. So the book of Judges has to be read through those glasses, right? We have to put on our glasses, our sort of systematic biblical glasses that allow us to see this is not God's ideal. Far from it. This is a, a radical deviation, a departure from God's ideal. And so we need to read these stories in that context. And uh, without further ado or introduction, let's get into this. Um, I do have to move a little bit quickly. And there, there's a couple really salient points here. Some of the points we've already addressed, um, like the alcohol point, the prenatal influences point. We've talked about those. The alcohol point, I know we talked about in the chapter on Nadab and Abihu. And I think we've even talked about prenatal influences maybe with Moses, I don't remember. And maybe we haven't talked about that, but I do remember talking about the alcohol in the Nadab and Abihu, so we won't go too deep on that because the chapter really opens with, you know, the importance of prenatal influences, parenting, marriage. We'll make a few observations about that, but for the most part, we're just going to kind of rush to the story of Samson, highlight a few details, because honestly, it's, it's not a story that appeals to me particularly for the reasons that I've already outlined. Like, it's not a story that I go, ooh, I want to find some great biblical spiritual insight in. It's a story that I want to read, I want to understand, I want to understand in its historical context, and then frankly, I want to move on. Because I just know that, again, this is, you know, an accommodation, you know, built on an accommodation, built on an accommodation. We are so many degrees off of God's original plan that we should be reading these stories primarily descriptively, not prescriptively right? And I think this is a mistake that a lot of people make. They just open the Bible, particularly to the Old Testament. I guess I am going to say some more words by introduction. <laughs> you know, they just open the Bible indiscriminately to an Old Testament story, and they just start reading it, and they start making all these, like, spirit, uh, not even spiritual, but like, like, really encouraging, inspiring applications. And it's like, okay, fine, but make sure you understand that in the narrative flow of the text, because the Bible is telling a story, that's what we teach here at Arise, that the Bible is telling a story, and that story goes from pre-creation, creation, fall, covenant, and then Messiah, church, recreation. And in that story, in that narrative flow, we need to be mindful when we're reading plan A, which is God's revelation in Christ, right? God's goodness, God's love, God's creative power. And when we're reading not even just plan B, but like plan X, Y, Z. And I think it's important for us to be careful that we don't start making applications to stories, descriptive stories, 
in you know plans X, Y, Z and applying them like, oh yeah, this is God's plan, this is God's. No, that that's something that might work or pass for somebody who's not familiar with the flow and the narrative of Scripture, but it's not going to work for us. And uh, my word, just to tempt you and to, to, to whet your appetite a little bit, my word exactly captures this, I think. And I'll be interested to see if you agree. I can't wait, honestly, to see what your guys' words are. So without further ado, let's pray. Let's get into this. And um, welcome. So glad you're here. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you. And Lord, we are in many ways like Samson. We have failed. We have fallen. We have made a mess of things. And Lord, we need you to, as the the body of Samson was recovered from the rubble of a giant mess that didn't need to have been, Father, we need to be recovered from the mess that we have made. Uh, Father, some of us are in the midst of a mess right now, a situation that we feel like we could not easily be extracted from. Father, but by your grace, by your salvation, by your wisdom, you can extract us from the biggest of messes, the most uh, seemingly Um, inescapable circumstances in life. And Father, help us to look back on the messes that we've made in the past to learn the lessons that are there to be grasped and understood, and then to not make those messes going forward. Father, in other words, help us to learn these lessons, not just the lessons from Samson and Gideon and others like them in this dark period in Israel's history, but Father, the lessons from our own lives. You're trying to teach us things, and Father, help us to learn those things. It's easy to read the story of Samson and just scratch your head and go, what was he thinking? Or was he thinking at all? But Father, I can look back on my own life and I can see things and say, what was I thinking? Was I thinking at all? And so Father, in these stories, help us to learn, to understand, to marvel, to be sad, and then by your grace to grow. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Pretty much said everything I want to say in the prayer there. <laughs> All right, um, so let's start off here. Do I have my right glasses on? Yeah, I do. Okay, there it is. Um, probably just read the first paragraph to kind of get us going here. The first several pages, let's see, the first, Samson doesn't show up until pretty late, um, not late maybe, but pretty deep into the chapter, and um, maybe a couple pages in. So let's start by just reading that opening paragraph, and then we'll just briefly mention a few of the points that she makes by way of introduction, then we'll get into some of the episodes in the life of Samson. Uh, Paragraph one, I'm on page 690 of Types and Symbols, looks like it's 560 of the original pagination. She writes, amid the widespread apostasy, the faithful worshipers of God continued to plead with him for the deliverance of Israel. And that line right there is crucial, widespread apostasy. Okay, that already alerts you to the fact that we're not on plan A. We're not even on plan B, right? If we have widespread collective apostasy in Israel, we are well down the line of departures or deviations from God's original intent in the occupation. I mean, just think about this. The original plan, think about this, just to put it in perspective. The original plan was from Sinai, where Israel had spent the better part of a year, to the borders of the Canaan land was an 11-day journey. 11 days. Okay, 11 days to get there, but there was a 40-year detour, and then there was the very slow Um, wars with Canaan because the tribes had gotten stronger that occupied Canaan, and they had become bolder because they had won a defeat there. I don't want to go too deep on this, but I'm just trying to get the the big picture here. They had won a defeat. They had suffered a defeat there, and so the the tribes of Canaan were stronger. So when Israel now comes to go in 
It takes a long time. Joshua dies. He divides or he divides the land. Then he dies. The tribes are, you know, they're settling in. They're saying, well, you know, this land, it's enough of the land. We have 80%. We have 70%. I mean, we are so far away from that 11-day journey, which would have been, in my imagination, very much like the Red Sea experience, where God just, in one fell swoop with Egypt, just buried all of Egypt, all of the Egyptian army, I should say, and the Pharaoh and the priests in the water, and it probably took a few hours, right? I can imagine that if they had gone straight into the Canaan land, the conquest would have taken maybe weeks or months, not the protracted years and decades. And so the book of Judges really shouldn't even be in the Bible, right? It shouldn't, none of this should be happening. And so when we read this widespread apostasy, right, amid the widespread apostasy, the faithful worshipers of God continue to plead with him for the deliverance of Israel, all of this should not be happening, right? We, we shouldn't have these stories. We have them because this is the actual circumstance that the, that the Israelites found themselves in and the circumstance that God found himself in. But we are just so far away from God's original plan here in the occupation of the land in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise right? I'll give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this hardly feels like that. And that's exactly how it's supposed to feel. As I said yesterday, like a dull thud that just kind of lands right in the middle of the glory, you know, the relative glory of Genesis, Exodus, and even Joshua. And now it's like, really? This is where we're at? Okay, let's continue reading. Though there was apparently no response, and I underline that phrase because sometimes it feels like that in prayer. You're crying out, you're pleading, and there's apparently no response. And I felt like this in my prayers to God and be like, God, are you coming through, right? Are you hearing me? One translation of, I think it's Psalm 81 says, God, are you, are you deaf that you cannot hear? Are you blind that you cannot see? You know, this is the situation. I mean, I need you to come through. And so though there was apparently no response, though year after year, the power of the oppressor continued to rest more heavily upon the land, well, that wasn't supposed to be, God's providence was preparing help for them. Even in the early years of the Philistine oppression, a child was born through whom God designed to humble the power of these mighty foes. Okay, so even this is just such a, it's such a, a mild win in the context of a gigantic loss. Like, oh, we'll give them a little help. You know, there will be the slaying of a few Philistines, but the Philistines and the other, many of the other tribes of Canaan now are so powerful that all we can hope for is a flash in the pan, right? A Gideon-like experience. But I mean, we just read Gideon yesterday, and then now here we're in this situation. You know, yesterday it was the Midianites, today it's the Philistines, right? So all we're getting is these little, these little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? These little flames, these little flickers of, of God's coming through in miraculous and supernatural ways, like the routing of the giant army of the Midianites by 300 men with Gideon yesterday, and then today, Samson's, you know, supernatural strength. But again, I'm gonna, you're probably going to get tired of me saying this in this lesson, but this is just so far off of God's intent and plan, and we have to read these stories like that. Okay, I'm going to move on here. So uh, second paragraph there, you know, there's this um, little town called Zorah, and there's this family of Manoah from the tribe of Dan, and the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife and says that you're going to have a child that will begin to deliver Israel. Think about that language begin to deliver Israel. Well, Israel was just delivered in Exodus from Egypt, from the most powerful, one of the most powerful nations on the earth at that time. So now Israel needs to be delivered again. Again, you're going to get tired of me saying this. 
This is not where Israel is supposed to be, not even close. And yet God works with what he has and works with who he has. So in the revelation of the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, to Manoah and his wife, it's declared that this man will be a Nazarite. And uh, if you want to understand a little bit more about the Nazarite vows, you can go back to, I think it's Numbers chapter 6, and read about the Nazarite vows, not drinking anything from the, the vine, not cutting your hair, and there were a few other details. And the Nazarite vow, <clears throat> as it's described in Numbers chapter 6, was not, was not a permanent vow. It could be taken for periods of time. It was basically, as I understand it, uh, an opportunity to sanctify yourself, to set yourself apart for a, um, a purpose of holiness or of connection or, or to set aside a period of your life. You know that because it says that your hair would grow long, so it has to be at least months, if not years. And so, so Samson was a Nazarite, right? He was set aside, trying to hearken back, trying to get back to something resembling what God had revealed to Moses, right? And yet, Samson, with all of his blessings, with all of the benefits that come supernaturally from this Nazarite vow, and again, this isn't obviously a general um, principle that if you grow your hair out and you don't drink grape juice or eat grapes or drink wine, that you're going to suddenly have supernatural strength. No. Um, it's just saying that in this situation, in this circumstance, God was trying to alert Israel, go back to the law, go back to Moses, think about how your strength, right, how your might, how your power comes from me, not from you. It's, it's purposefully absurd, right? It's purposefully kind of silly, like, oh, wait a minute, somebody has long hair and they don't drink grape juice and therefore they have supernatural strength? Well, no, there's no connection here. Nobody else has ever had this experience. It was a unique, it was a, a unique situation. It was a one-off designed to direct the mind of Israel back to the true source of their strength and power and might and that is God, and it's God's word, and it's God's law, and it's God's truth, and it's God's goodness. But of course, you know, as we're going to discover, that strength that was the blessing of God that was designed to direct people to God, away from Sam Samson's strength, which was really weakness, and direct it back to God actually just becomes an end in itself. And so all of these feats of strength and the the slaying of, you know, the ripping off of the gates there and the slaying of people, all of this is a um, almost a performative and selfish use of the thing that was designed to direct the minds of Israel and of Samson himself, to state the obvious, back to God as the true source of their strength. And she actually makes a couple points to that effect in this chapter. Okay, so he's going to be a Nazarite. Uh, she then spends quite a little bit of time talking about prenatal influences and uh, she writes about how, you know, the drinking of alcohol or intemperate living or eating has significant effects in utero, and she is, of course, exactly right. Um, I think I've mentioned before, and if you haven't heard me say it in OT with DA, I've said it in some sermons of mine, that one of the things that played a really pivotal and transformative role in my life was that I spent almost three years taking care of people with developmental disabilities of various kinds, Down syndrome, autism, and I had one young man in particular that I took care of for the better part of a year in a residential context. His name was Joshua, and he was a fetal alcohol syndrome child. And he was probably 21 or 22 when I was taking care of him, and uh, he couldn't speak. You know, he walked, but, but in a very labored way. And he was a beautiful soul. I, I absolutely loved him. 
and he used to say mom, but he had a difficult time, you know, making, he couldn't say many words. He would try to say the word mom, which was his favorite word to say. And he would take his, his little bent hand and he would say, mama, mama, mama. He would use his hand to push his mouth up to close for the m part. I loved that. I loved that boy. He was a young man, but he was, he was boyish in his attitude. And, and in those days, and I probably was breaking the rules then, but you could just tell he, he was, in, you know, like any person in their late teens, early 20s, lots of energy, lots of enthusiasm. And uh, I took care of him in his home there. And I used to wrestle with him. You know, he had some sort of crippled things, but we used to wrestle and I'd gr tickle him. And I don't even know if you could do that today, but he just would love it. He'd laugh. <laughs> oh, we had a blast together. But it's also sad because it didn't need to have been that way. And this is what Ellen, this is part of what Ellen White's driving at here. And I actually had the thought this morning, I'm not sure the degree to which, uh, you know, the prenatal influences of alcohol were known in 1890 when this book was published. In fact, I'm going to suggest that it probably was not a, de a, a determinative, you know, definitive, that's what I'm looking for, a definitive connection, I'm going to suggest, might not have even been known. So she's ahead of the curve here saying, yeah, if you want your baby to be healthy, you should be healthy. We now know this, right? There's prenatal vitamins and even prenatal workouts and all of this. And so that's what's going on here. And, you know, to state the obvious, we should be mindful that all life comes from God and in utero life is precious. I've spent some time talking about abortion already. That was in one of the chapters earlier. And she actually says, in fact, there's this great line here. Um, where does she say? She says, the mother is by the command of God himself placed under the most solemn obligation to exercise self-control. Wow. Right? Like, like God, it's, a it's not just a responsibility to have a baby, it's a privilege to have a life. I, I preached on this or talked on this uh, at Arise this last week, that, that creation moves from sort of disorder to order, from chaos to completion. And if you're moving through creation, the six days of creation culminating with the Sabbath, if you're moving through the last material thing that God makes, of course, he makes the Sabbath on the seventh day, but the last physical thing that God makes is a woman. Right now, just think that through. This is amazing. If you're moving from disorder to order or from chaos to completion, and the last thing that God makes is a woman, and, and the word that's even used for the making of woman is, I think, the word bara, and Sylvia talked a little bit about this, that, that man was made, and the word there is just the generic sort of crafted, but, but the woman was built, right? It required like, like the same word that's used for the building of a city. And you see that, right? Like a woman carries a child. It's such a beautiful, miraculous, incredible thing. A, a woman carries a child in her body and then nurses that child at her body. A woman is a life giver in, an, in a sense that a male is not, right? Like a woman is, is, how, is built and, and her whole body is to house and to take care of a child. It's so miraculous and beautiful and wonderful and godly. And godly, and that's the point. God is the creator. God is the sustainer. God is the one who carries us. Well, a woman sustains and carries and nourishes and feeds and consoles her in utero child and then her newly born child. It's so beautiful and wonderful. So yeah, the idea here is that it's not only uh, a responsibility and an obligation, which of course it is, it's a privilege. 
And so she says the mother is by the command of God himself placed under the most solemn obligation to exercise self-control. And so, you know, not only was Samson not to partake of, you know, the fruit of the vine, but neither was Manoah's wife. Um, okay, fast forwarding now up to page 693, um, 563 of the original, we come to the uh, paragraph that begins, the divine promise to Manoah. So jump down about midway through that, and you'll see the word had, had Samson. Had Samson obeyed the divine commands as faithfully as his parents had done, his would have been a nobler and happier destiny. And that's the point. What might have been, what could have been. But association with idolaters corrupted him. And this is when, you know, right at the outset there in, what is it, chapter 14, because the birth is 13. Yeah, chapter 14, he sees a, a woman from one of the Canaanite tribes. She pleases me well and kind of get her for me. The parents yield. And, uh, you know, then, he, then you just begin this virtually uninterrupted journey of Samson just living by the whims and, and caprice of his desire for, in, you know, for the most part, violence and women. Right, like that's that's really his life, and it's it's not a it's not a life that you want to take as any kind of an example. I mean, even his death is pathetic, and I know that he's celebrated as a hero of faith in Hebrews eleven, but it's it's still so far so far removed from what God had intentioned. But what she says here is amazing. Had Samson obeyed the divine commands as faithfully as his parents had done, his would have been a nobler and happier destiny. Well, just think of the antonyms for nobler and happier. So, so the opposite of noble would be what? Ignoble and mundane and tragic and terrible. I mean, there's a lot of, and then, and happier. Well, what's the opposite of that? Sad, tragic, terrible, unfortunate. So his destiny could have been a noble and happy destiny. He could have begun that trajectory to get Israel, to some degree, back on the original plan of, con of the conquest of Canaan, the dispossession of the Canaanites from the land. But as it turns out, the strength that was given as a gift for Israel's deliverance actually just became an end in itself. And that's the point. That's the point. What, what might have been, what could have been. And she makes that point over and over again in this chapter, and I think it's exactly the right point. That is what we're so that's exactly what we should be getting, not just out of the story of Samson, but out of the whole book of Judges. Okay, then she spends um, a paragraph on 693, a couple paragraphs actually, talking about marriage. And um, I'm not going to go too deep on that, except to say that obviously Samson's marriages here are far from ideal. And you read these stories and you're just, they're horrific and they're barbaric, right? Like the Samson's initial lover is burned alive with her new husband. I mean, it's just like, just come on, just stop it. Um, so then I want to come to page 694. And there's a, a really great paragraph here that I think highlights the importance, and I've made this point before, but I'll make it again, the, the importance of influence and surrounding ourselves in contexts where we are sure that a lot of godly influence is flowing to us, and then when we do find ourselves with people who are, you know, not followers of Jesus, not passionate about Scripture, that we're we're creating circumstances and situations, and we are prayed up and studied up and filled up enough with the Spirit that the inflowing the influence rather is flowing not 
to us from unbelievers, but from us to them. Okay, and so take a look at this. It's page 694, 563 of the original. The paragraph begins, at his marriage. At his marriage feast, Samson was brought into familiar association with those who hated the God of Israel. Well, that's going to happen to us too, right? In the course of our lives, we're going to, whether it's uh, some business situation or somebody you work with or a family member or something that you do recreationally, yeah, you're going to find yourselves surrounded by, in certain social situations, people who don't love the God that you love, who don't serve the God that you serve or value the God that you value. They're going to hate this God. And so Samson at his marriage feast finds himself in those situations. Watch what happens. Whoever voluntarily enters into such relations will feel it necessary to conform to some degree to the habits and customs of his companions. The time thus spent is worse than wasted. Thoughts are entertained and words are spoken that tend to break down the strongholds of principle and to weaken the citadel of the soul. Exactly. Exactly. As I told my boys many, many times as they were growing up, and I still tell them to this day, when you find yourself with people who don't love the God you love, who don't serve the God you serve, just remind yourself of this, that influence is either flowing primarily from you or to you. And in those social situations, you want to be sure that the influence is, the influence is flowing from you to them, right? And it doesn't always have to be in these really overt, um, you know, uh, unambiguously religious ways. No, it can just be that you are who you are. You have your convictions. You have your principles. You have your connection with God, and that's not compromised. That's not, oh, I'm going to make an accommodation here. I don't want to upset. I don't want to offend. Now, again, this is not the same as what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to the weak you become as weak, to the strong as strong, to those that's under the law is under the law. That's, that's an evangelistic accommodation with a purpose, with an, with an intent. Jesus, of course, is the master contextualizer. That's not what's being described here. There's a giant difference between contextualization and compromise. Okay, compromise is to purposefully hide or to, to take off some of your Christianity so as to find yourself accepted in a group of people that don't believe what you believe, love who you love, and serve who you serve. That's compromise, and that should be avoided at all costs in all circumstances. Compromise is different from contextualization where you wisely, intentionally, purposefully choose to not say certain things, to be strategic about your relationships so that you can bring about an end um, going forward that allows you to have more influence. That's the point. Compromise takes away your influence. Contextualization is designed to strategically increase your influence, and not even your influence, but the influence of Jesus. So you see yourself as a vessel through whom God is working to bring the good news of God's love and God's goodness and God's plan God's saving plan for everyone, including those that you're associating with in that moment, to them. Bam! Okay, so this is really important, everybody. You have to understand the difference between compromise, social compromise, as she says here, uh, they will feel it necessary to conform to some degree to the habits and customs of their companions. Okay, that's compromise. Moral, spiritual compromise. No, that's a no. Contextualization is different, right? Because Jesus didn't wander around, for example, just, just to use Jesus as our example, which of course he is. Jesus didn't wander around the Galilean countryside telling everybody, hey, everybody, I'm the Messiah. I'm just telling the truth. I'm a truth teller. I'm the Messiah. You've been looking for the Messiah. No, no, no. no. He, was, he was strategic. He was intelligent. He was wise. In the social situations in which he found himself, he was always dropping those little opportunities for people to become aware of who he was and aware of the beauty and glory of the kingdom 
but he did so in a strategic, intelligent, contextual way. Bam. Right? Such that when Jesus spoke to fishermen, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. When he spoke to a woman at a well, he said, I'll give you water that you'll never thirst again. When he spoke to a man of authority, the Roman centurion, who said, I tell people to go and they go and come and they come. Jesus said, go to that man. When he spoke to the rich young ruler, which I think is what I might preach on today, he said, um, follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. I'll give you an investment opportunity you cannot miss. When we see Paul in Acts 13, 14, and 17 speaking in different contexts and situations, he morphs and transforms what he's saying to fit the social situation. That's not compromise. That's contextualization. And so we have to see here that what's happening is, is that Samson's influence is not flowing, the influence rather, the equilibrium, you know, it's never flat. It's either tilted this way or it's tilted this way. It's either flowing to you or from you. And you want to be honest in your assessment of your relationships with people who don't love who you love and serve who you serve. Is the influence going this way or that way? Okay? And if you find that the influence is coming toward you, your language is becoming crass, your thoughts are impure, you're tempted or inclined to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do, that's not a relationship worth keeping because that relationship will pollute you just like Samson was polluted and ultimately uh, significantly, serially compromised by his association with not just non-Israelites, but particularly non-Israelite women. Okay, so um, moving right along here, let's jump over to page 695. That's 564 of the original. This is the paragraph that begins, had, had the Israelites, and this is the same construction that Ellen White used earlier. Let me just remind you of it. We read this earlier. Had Samson obeyed the divine commands as faithfully as his parents had done, his would have been. So she uses this construction. Had this happened, then this would have happened. She does it here again. Back to page 695. Watch this. Had the Israelites been ready to unite with Samson and follow up the victory, they might at this time have freed themselves from the power of their oppressors. So she's dealing with what philosophers or even theologians sometimes call called counterfactuals. And not to go too deep on this, but a counterfactual is something that could have been otherwise than it is. And so I'll just use myself as an example. I married Violetta, and then Violetta and I had two children, Landon and Jabel. That is what happened, right? The ink of history is dry. That's unchangeable. It has occurred. But I didn't have, I was not under compulsion to marry Violetta. I mean, I was under compulsion by her beauty and, and just the amazing person that she was. But I wasn't under an absolute compulsion. I could have married somebody else, and if I'd married somebody else, then I would have had different children, and those are known as counterfactuals, things that could have been but did not happen. And God has a knowledge, friends, not only of what has happened or what, what will happen. God has a knowledge of what could have happened. God is aware comprehensively of every circumstance that could have been. He has a, a comprehensive, exhaustive, encyclopedic knowledge of every interaction, not only that has happened, but that could have happened. Everything that might have happened and those things that could have been otherwise than they are, are called counterfactuals. And God's knowledge of those counterfactual realities is sometimes referred to as God's middle knowledge. His awareness of what may have been had other inputs occurred right? These other realities. It's amazing to think about. It's just, it's just mind-blowing 
just to think that God not only sees what is, he sees what might have been, the potential for the other trillions of outcomes, right, or more, <laughs> that many more, that could have eventuated, could have occurred. It's fantastic. So let's go back to that. Um, page 695. Had the Israelites united with Samson to follow up the victory, they might at this time have freed themselves from the power of the oppressors. God sees, oh, here's an opportunity, here comes an opportunity, a missed opportunity. Oh, here comes an opportunity, here comes an opportunity, a missed opportunity. And God sees, like exits on a highway, God sees that they're on the path of widespread apostasy, and, and he sees all of these exits. Oh, that, no, you missed it. And, and a little bit like you know, the GPS, the modern GPS programs that we have today, where it'll say, you know, you missed your exit, you missed your turn, rerouting you. But the, but the rerouting is always longer. The, the rerouting is longer. So now you have to drive two miles longer or three kilometers longer down that interstate to get the next exit. Oh, you missed that one too. Okay, you're rerouted again. You're rerouted again. That's what God's doing here, rerouting, rerouting. And God sees, here comes an opportunity. Oh, you missed it. What might have been. Had Samson then this could have happened. Had the Israelites, then this could have. Okay, that's how we're supposed to read the book of Judges. We're not supposed to read this book prescriptively, like, oh, look at all these great stories. This is really awesome. I'm going to make all these applications to myself. No, you're supposed to be reading it and going, missed opportunity, missed opportunity, you know, shouldn't have been this way, didn't need to be this way. That's how you're, you're supposed to read these stories as warnings, not as great tales of inspiration and God wants me to slay a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's not the takeaway, okay? And it's, it's not to say that there aren't some highlights in the Old Testament and in the book of Judges, but you're largely supposed to be reading it through the lens of missed opportunity, missed opportunity, missed opportunity, missed opportunity. And Ellen White captures that here with this, had they then this, had they then this. What could have been? What might have been? Okay. She then says at the bottom of that page, 695, um, after his victory, the Israelites made Samson judge, and he ruled Israel for 20 years, but one wrong step prepares the way for another. And I just wrote, isn't that true? Isn't that true that there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of downward slipperiness to, to you, you make them, and then it's easier, and then, and then it's easier again, and then it's easier again. It's like I told my boys, boys, the number one way to never take a second drink of alcohol, and I've told my sons this <laughs> dozens or hundreds of times in their lives, the, 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 the number one way to never take that second drink of alcohol, don't take the first. Don't take the first. Because if you don't take the first drink, it's a mathematical impossibility to take the second drink, right? And, and we should see not just alcohol, but we should just see life that way. Like, if I make this wrong decision, then it's easier to make the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one, and that's what we see with Israel. And that's what we see with Samson. In many ways, Samson is kind of a microcosm here of Israel's unfaithfulness. Okay, let's hustle along here. Next page, 696. By the way, there's a little dog here that barks sometimes. I can hear him barking right now, her barking right now. So apologies for that, right? This isn't a professional studio. I'm in Madison's bedroom. Thank you, Madison. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Lucy, little barking dog. Um, 696, just very quickly, right in the middle there, this is uh, 565 of the original, but notwithstanding his sin, God's mercy had not forsaken him. Ooh, underline that, write it down, make a note of it. But notwithstanding his sin, God's mercy had not forsaken him. And I wrote down, that's all of us. Notwithstanding David's sin, 
God has not forsaken me. Notwithstanding your sin, God has not forsaken you. God has not, notwithstanding your sin, God has not forsaken you. That's the message of Judges. God's working with what he's got, and what he's got is not a lot. Well, that kind of rhymed. God's working with what he's got, and what he's got is not a lot. And often in my own life, I create situations that are Samson-like, where I give God, right, not enough to really work with, not enough of my time, not enough of my money, not enough of my energies, not enough of my influence, and God's like, this? You want me to work with this? Okay, I'll work with this, but I could work more powerfully and more profoundly if you gave me more to work with. What might have been, what could have been, not just in Samson's life, not just in ancient Israel, but in my life. Come on now. And not just on the you know, macro scale, monthly, yearly, you know, every decade, but day to day. What might have been? What opportunities have I missed today? Right? It's not a lot. That's hot. Okay, very good, Johnny. Very good. Even threw in the, the additional rhyme there. Um, okay, now here's one of the themes that I, one of the things I really liked here. This is very cool. Next paragraph begins, but even this narrow escape. Jump down to uh, about halfway down that paragraph, and this is a very cool idea. Uh, the Valley of Sorek was celebrated for its vineyards. These also had a temptation for the wavering Nazarite. Oh, I missed that word. Wavering. How did I miss that? I like that word there. Great word. I read this twice, and I missed that. The wavering Nazarite. That's exactly what's going on here. And I want that wavering-ness out of my life. I just want to be for Jesus every day, by the grace of God, every moment, every year. I just want to be for God. I don't want to be wavering, oscillating, vacillating. Wow. Okay, let's get to my point here. I love that word. The wavering Nazarite who had already indulged in the use of wine. Now watch this. Thus breaking another tie. Ooh, this is very cool, very poetic. Underline that. Thus breaking another tie that bound him to purity and to God. Oh, this is so interesting. Now watch what she goes on to say. She's going to play on this binding and this tie. Breaking another tie. So, so here's basically the story. He's either bound to God, and in, in the story of Samson, he's bound to God in very tangible, visible ways. He's bound to God by his Nazarite vow, by his long hair that's a part of that Nazarite vow. These are things that bind him to God. So notice this, he then breaks one of those ties. He's not now bound to God, and watch where she goes with this, that bound him to purity and to God. The Philistine kept a vigilant watch over the movements of their, the Philistines kept a vigilant watch over the movements of their enemy. And when he degraded himself by this new attachment, wow, this is so cool. This new attachment, obviously this new attachment is a woman, but it's, it's, it's more than a woman. It's a new, he's, he's losing the things that are binding him to God. And by the way, when you're bound to God, you're free, right? This is why Paul can begin most of his letters with Paul, a slave of Christ, or Paul, a bondservant of Jesus. Because when we are bound to God, we are at our freest. We are most liberated when we're bound to God because God created us, fashioned us, and knows what it is to be truly human and to be truly free. As I've said just this last week to the Arise students, true freedom is not getting to do whatever you want to do in some libertine sense. 
True freedom is being able to do what you were created and made to do. And so she uses this fascinating language here that, that in drinking of the wine, he, he took a, 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 an attachment, a tie, off of that which bound him to Yahweh, and then he took another tie and bound him. She says, by this new attachment, they determined through Delilah to accomplish his ruin. Wow. This has got that Romans 6, what is it, 16 feel? Let me just quickly see if that's right. Romans 6, 16. Let me see if I can quickly find that. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Am I right? Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? Exactly. We are bound either by our creatureliness to God, or we are bound by our licentiousness and sin to this world. But we are bound, right? Being, being not attached or not bound or not enslaved is not an option for human beings. We are either connected to God and to his goodness and to his will and to his plan for our life, or we are attached to this world. And she plays on that here. I wrote here, we are either bound to God or bound to sin. And every time we lose something that attaches us to God, we gain something that attaches us to sin. Bam. And, oh, let's just take this to its final conclusion here in the story of Samson. He will eventually be literally bound, right? He will be captured when that last attachment to God is shorn from his head. When, it, when, when, he, when he's bald-headed and he's lost his last attachment to God, then he is literally physically bound. His eyes are poked out and he is eyeless in Gaza, right? He's taken to Gaza. That's the name of um, an Aldous Huxley. It's actually from a, a poem by Milton. And then Aldous Huxley, the English writer, wrote a book called Eyeless in Gaza. He's, he has his eyes poked out and he's taken to Gaza and he's bound to the mill. So, so just see this as a one-to-one, -one, right? Like, like if you lose an attachment to God, you gain an attachment to the world. If you lose something that binds you to God, you gain an attachment. And once you've lost the last thing that attaches you to God, you are fully bound to the world. And when you're bound to the world, you are a slave just as Samson was a slave. And that's the point. That's how we're supposed to read this. That when we sever our attachments to Yahweh, when we sever our attachments to his love, to his goodness, to his truth, to his law, we end up eyeless in Gaza. Attached to a mill going round and round and round again. What might have been, what could have been lost forever. Okay? Um, so then, uh, next page, just a couple, uh, a really quick point here, 697. The paragraph begins day by day. Day by day. Well, this sounds exactly like Lot, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. We already talked about Lot. How Lot, a righteous man, moved to an unrighteous city. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8 says that his righteous soul was vexed or cursed or annoyed day by day. It didn't happen all at once. It happened little by little by little. And she actually says that here. Listen, day by day, Delilah urged him until his soul was vexed. Very same word that Peter uses, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Righteous soul, Lot's righteous soul was vexed day by day. Vexed. Two words. I, I, to me, it was unmistakable. His soul was vexed to death. Yet a subtle power kept him by her side. Yeah, that subtle power is lust, right? Somebody has said, and I, I think it's well said, that, that if you think you, particularly as a man, but anybody, are immune 
to sexual sin and sexual temptation and the temptations of sensuality, then you are stronger than Samson, wiser than Solomon, and more godly than David. Because all of these were men that were significantly and seriously and serially overcome by women. Right? Stronger than Samson, wiser than Solomon, more godly than David. And so there was this strange power that just kept him. And we've all seen this. Maybe we've seen it in our own lives. We just get into a bad relationship or we see it in others and we're like, man, there's a there's an almost magical power there, an infatuation that's just unshakable, right? And there's something that happens and it's not just men to women, it's women to men. And you just see people and you think, what's going on there? That is such a poisonous, toxic relationship. And everybody around can see it. It's like, get away, get out. But this codependency develops and people by, as she says here, some subtle power stay in terrible situations and terrible, abusive, toxic relationships. Maybe some of you have been in some of those relationships. It's hard to extract yourself from them. And the antidote to a toxic relationship is not another toxic relationship. It's a godly relationship. But again, if we've lost those ties that are binding us to God in his ways, we're acquiring ties that are binding us to the world in its ways. Now, jump down to the next um, paragraph there, still on 697, 566 of the original. What a change to him had been. Uh, what a change to him who had been the judge and champion of Israel, right? Striding around his area there, you know, tying foxes' tails together and, and you know, slaying people with the job. And now he's eyeless in Gaza, wandering in circles, realizing that his whole life, his whole life was a giant, series of missed opportunities, what might have been, what could have been, what might have been, what could have been, what might have been, what could have been. And then listen to this. Now weak, blind, and imprisoned. That's us. That's us. Weak, blind, and imprisoned. Underline it. And degraded. Weak, blind, imprisoned, and degraded. This sounds a little bit like the great physician's diagnosis of the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3. Poor, wretched, miserable, blind, naked. Here, weak, blind, imprisoned, and degraded. Exactly. That's us, apart from God, apart from his goodness, apart from his influence, apart from his law, apart from his word. That's us. Weak, blind, imprisoned, and degraded to the most menial service. And then this. Little by little, he had violated the conditions of his sacred calling. Underline that. Little by little, and then draw a line if you're marking in your if you're marking and it's on the same page, which it should be 697 in types and symbols, 566 of the original. Draw a line connecting day by day and little by little. Day by day, little by little. And this is how the enemy works with subtlety, right? With suggestion, with innuendo, with little temptations, with small steps that lead to big departures. with small steps that lead to big departures, right? Day by day, little by little. It wasn't one giant compromise. It was a series of compromises, which is, again, why, friends, in those relationships that we have with people who don't know what we know, who don't love who we love, who don't serve who we serve, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I compromising or contextualizing? And we have to be honest with ourselves, right? Am I making those day by day, little by little accommodations to a social situation that I might look back a month later, a year later, a decade later, and say, whoa, I have wandered 
I've wandered very far from God's original plan and intent for this relationship or for this situation. And let's remind ourselves, some relationships you just got to get away from. And I'm not just talking about romantic relationships. I'm talking about some friendships. Some friendships, if the influence, if it's impossible that the influence flows from you because you've either lost your influence, you've compromised your influence, or the other person is just so charismatic, or the other group of people are just so charismatic that all the influence, no matter what you do, is flowing to you, cut the ties. Find a new social circle. Find a new group of friends. Find a new situation because you're not strong enough. You are not strong enough, friends. You're just not. Not in those situations because you're weak, blind, imprisoned, and degraded. No, you want to be crafting, and especially for children. There's a lot to be said here about the raising of children, especially teenagers. One of the most important, and I'll write about this when Jen and I, we're writing our book on marriage this year and then our book on parenting next year. One of the most important things that you do as a parent in, in the raising of teenagers is to to change, if you have to, the course and the location of your own life to create and to find a social situation where your teenagers can have positive influences, right? I sometimes hear people say, oh, yeah, you know, my, my child, they're in this really bad school. They're in this really bad situation. Yeah, I, I believe you. You know what I often say in those situations? Move. Yeah, move. Either move your child to a different school, a different situation, or move your whole family to a, a better situation. I mean, we, we purposefully chose Australia, Violetta and I. We purposefully chose this place, this community, this school, because we knew many of the families here, and we thought those are the kinds of people we want to raise our children around, and we were here for basically the entire, no, not basically, we were here for our children's teen years. And then now they've made these incredible friends, one of whom, as I mentioned, will be on OT with DA. He just texted me a couple days ago. You'll get to see him. He's an extraordinary, wonderful person and a lifelong friend for both of my boys, Luke. Can't wait to have him on. So whether it's with yourself or with your children, you are responsible for your social inputs, right? You are responsible for your social inputs. And if you find yourself or you find your family in a situation where you're surrounded by bad influences, and moving is an option, then move. Get out of there. Might be a giant inconvenience. Well, moving to Australia was not easy, right? And I'm not saying that moving to Australia is available to everyone, but moving to the next town, moving to the next state, finding a new social circle. I'm telling you, do this like your life depends on it, because it might. So day by day, little by little, she then goes on to say that, you know, the hair had no virtue in and of itself, but it was just a token of his attachment to Yahweh. Um, so then, you know, he's there in Gaza, eyes poked out, he's blind, and um, he realizes, um, she basically says that he realizes he had sacrificed his life to the indulgence of passion. I wrote this, the strongest man needed to become weak to learn what true strength was, and that's total reliance upon God. And that's one of the great ironies of the story of Samson, that the strongest man had to become weak, blind, imprisoned, and degraded to realize what the source of his strength was. It wasn't in the hair. It wasn't in the abstinence from the fruit of the vine. It was in his connection to Yahweh. And this, again, is a microcosm of Israel. Israel could have been what might have been what could have been. Um, so then he finds himself... Um, in the temple, and the Philistines are celebrating, and they're attributing the defeat of Samson to their gods. 
And then Samson prays this prayer, and uh, he says, Oh, Lord God, remember me, I pray, strengthen me, I pray just this once. Oh, God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines. One of the features of Samson's life is revenge. And God blesses it here. God honors Samson's prayer here. But Samson's life is largely, if you read the story again and look for all of the indications of revenge, you do not want a life that's characterized by trying to get back at people that have hurt you or wronged you, right? This is why in the Levitical law, one of the stipulations was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, right? Like that sounds, oh, that's so barbaric. That's so so terrible. No, it's actually not. It's actually a mechanism by which revenge and the ever escalating increase of revenge, well, you do two to me, I do four to you. You do four to me, it's four, six, eight, 10, 20, 50, right? That ever escalating, no, it was one for once, this for this. And so this idea here of revenge really captures a lot of Samson's life. And listen, I'm looking forward, if if, if in the final analysis, Samson is, is eternally saved, I'd be happy for that. I'd like to meet him. But I'm sure that one of the things that Samson would say was, I had drunk the, the, the poison of revenge, right? My life was largely characterized by getting back at people that had wronged me and hurt me. And you don't want a life like that. You, you just don't. You just need to let things go, right? I'm talking now about our personal application of this story. Even here in his prayer, and God answers this prayer, you get this, let me have revenge on my enemies. It's like, yeah, revenge is not the way forward. It's just not. Reconciliation is the way forward. Now, obviously, with the Canaanites, God has already given the command to dispossess and destroy. But I'm saying for us, again, we're not supposed to read these stories prescriptively. We're supposed to read them descriptively. And we're supposed to go, wow, Samson was a life characterized by revenge and getting back at people that had wronged him. I don't want my life to be characterized that way. So he takes his, she says, his mighty arms, wraps them around the pillar, moves the pillar, and everybody dies And I just wrote here, a giant, terrible mess, a fitting symbol of the world and of the whole book of Judges and even of the Old Testament. Just a big mess. A a pagan temple collapsed with a bunch of pagans in it and God's, what could have been his faithful Israelite. This is a fitting symbol of this chapter, of this story of Samson and of the whole. In fact, Ellen White, this is what she does. Last page here, 699. She does now three times in rapid succession what she's already done, and she does this what might have been thing, what could have been, okay? Uh, Next uh, page, 699, 568 of the original. Paragraph begins, God's promise. God's promise that through Samson he would begin to deliver Israel out of the hand, hand of the Philistines was fulfilled. But how dark and terrible the record of that life, which might have been a praise to God and a glory to the nation. There it is had Samson, there's that same literary construction, had might, had might. And if you didn't notice it on your first read through, go back, you know, this afternoon or sometime and just make a note to yourself right now. Look for the hads and the mights. Look for the hads and the mights. Had Samson been true to his divine calling, the purpose of God could have been accomplished in his honor and exaltation, but he yielded to temptation and proved untrue to his to his trust, and his mission was fulfilled in defeat, bondage, and death. Think about that. 
Think about that line. His message, his mission rather, was fulfilled in defeat, bondage, and death. Well, that was not God's plan. Even within the, the life of Samson, which is already not plan A, plan B, plan C, we're already well down the pike of God's collective plan for Israel. But Samson could have made the most of his own experience, his own opportunities, his own life, but he kept rerouting, 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 rerouting. And she says, finally, God did in some measure fulfill a significant defeat of the enemies of Israel, but how does it happen? In defeat, in bondage, and in death. Friends, that's not, we don't want our lives to be like that. You know, what might have been. No, 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 no. And then she does it again. Uh, next paragraph. Physically, Samson was the strongest man upon the earth, but in self-control, integrity, and firmness, he was one of the weakest. That's one of the contrasts that takes place here. Not only the binding and the binding, every tie that's loosed here is gained here, and he ends up bound finally, but also the strong and the weak, and the weak and the strong. And this is one of the great lines in the whole chapter. Many mistake strong passions for strong character, but the truth is that he who is mastered by his passions is a weak man. The real greatness of the man is measured by the power of the feelings that he controls, not those that control him. Boom. Mic drop moment. That's, what, that's, that's the great line, one of the great lines in the whole chapter. And then look at this, look at this. Next paragraph. God's providential care had been over Samson that he might be prepared to accomplish the work which he was called to do. At the very outset of his life, he was surrounded with favorable conditions for physical strength, intellectual vigor, and moral purity. But under the influence of wicked associates, he let go that hold upon God, which is man's only safeguard, and he was swept away by the tide of evil. So you see this had, might, and this might, but. And um, yeah, a sad story. A sad story within a sad story within a sad story. Let's go to the rubric, because I've still got a sermon to finish up. <laughs> All right, big day for me today. Let's go. Here's our rubric. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise with regards to the story of Samson. What was the point of the story? To tell another sad and unnecessary story within an already sad and unnecessary story, and to contrast true strength with perceived strength right? Samson was perceived to be strong, but he was weak. And this is, as I've said numerous times, and a sad and unnecessary story wrapped inside of a sad and unnecessary story. The book of Judges need not have been in Scripture had the Israelites fulfilled the commission by Joshua that he gave them just before his death to fully and further vanquish the Canaanites from the land, but instead they put them under tribute, as we saw in yesterday's chapter, and they thought, oh no, we're fine, we're strong. Just like Samson, they thought they were strong. They thought they could subdue the enemies that God said, you know, you don't just subdue them, you don't just put them under tribute. You have to, you have to extirpate them from the land. So too with us. We can't make peace with sin, friends. We can't make peace with rebellion. We can't make peace with slavery. These things have to be extirpated from us by God's power, by God's grace, by God's goodness. When we, when we start trying to make peace with sin, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And we find ourselves, how do we find ourselves? Let's remind, let's remind us. We find ourselves weak, blind, imprisoned, and degraded. And we don't want that. The person, what do we learn about the person of God in this chapter? Well, we learn that God works with what he has. Amen. God works with what he has. If God's best option was Samson, 
mercy, what does that tell us about Israel generally? I mean, just think about that. If Samson is the cream of the crop, if Samson is the best that God has to work with in Israel at this time, whoa, right? If that's the top of the mountain, this is not a very tall mountain. It's not a mountain at all. It's a pit. But God works with what he has. The prayer. The prayer. God, teach me to cling to the source of true strength. Teach me that when I am strong, I am weak, and that when I am weak, I am strong. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, his strength is made perfect in my weakness, not in my strength, but in my weakness, in my total dependence upon him. In fact, I'm so dependent upon him, I need to be bound to him. And in that binding, in that, in that servitude to God, I am liberated. It's paradoxical, but it's beautiful and true nonetheless. All right, and then the practice. Here's what I put. Don't bind myself to this world and to its ways. I want to bind myself to God by his word, by his laws, by his counsels. I don't want to bind myself to this world and its ways. What does it have to offer me? Nothing. What does God have to offer me? Everything, life and beauty and truth and happiness. And how about this? Eternity. Come on now. And then finally, the promise. God can work with and in the most difficult and desperate of circumstances. That means God can work with me. God can work with and in the most difficult and desperate of circumstances. That means God can work in my life. If God can use Samson, friends, God can use you. Come on now. If God can use this knucklehead, God can use you. And hopefully by the grace of God, you won't find yourself missing the exit, missing the exit, missing the opportunity, and being continually rerouted for the whole course of your life so that like Samson, only in your death is your purpose in life finally fulfilled. I mean, what a sad tragedy this is. Okay, I want to know what your word is. I want to know what your word is. Okay, MB for him says, wavering, great word. On my first reading through, I totally missed that word. And it's one of the most important words in the whole chapter. Okay, power. Allison Amory says, weak, obviously. Very good. Notwithstanding, great word, Susanna. Wavering. Wow, a lot of people picked up on that. Good for you. Temperance. Yeah, Joanne, 2037, that's my word. I'll come back to that in just a second. Blind, humble, wood of my word is might, might, and I'll, I'll tell you why in just a second. Destiny, yielded, wasted, Victor Mill says might, brilliant. Oh, very good, Mrs. Leslie Rosado, locks, as in hair, the locks of hair, and in padlocks, I like that. Bound, but, weakness, self-control, self-control, bound, passion. Fulfilled association. Wow, I can't stop thinking about locks. That's so good. Association, strengthen. Oh, Christian, I love you, buddy. Might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure that many of you that have might saw the the second application, which I'll get to in just a second. Association, intemperance, another association. Very good. Man, the word locks is so great. Okay, so here's, here's what I really liked about the word might. 
is that she uses the word might in two ways in this chapter. She uses the word might in the ways that I've described here repeatedly, you know, had, you know, had this happened, this might have happened, but, right, this had, might, but. She, she uses that construction like five times or some variation of it, five or maybe even six times. But then the other obvious application of might is that Samson possessed great might, right? She uses the word that way. She talks about his mighty strength, his mighty arms. And so to me, the word might is the perfect word because what might have been had Samson used his might in the way that it was intended, right? So we get the double application there. I really like locks. I love that. That's great. But, but I, I also really like the word might because might is used repeatedly in the chapter in both ways. What might have been, what might have been, what might have been, and then Samson's might, his power, his strength, which eventually became the source of his downfall. And so I hope you all enjoyed that. We'll be back tomorrow. What's tomorrow's lesson? Ooh, the child Samuel, some good news, right? The, the, the story of Samuel... Uh, and now we're out of Judges, and, and frankly, two chapters is enough for me. Two chapters is enough for me. I mean, the book of Judges is 20, let's, let's just remind ourselves, how many chapters are there in the book of Judges? 21, is it 21? That sounds right. Yeah, 21 chapters. Yeah, two chapters is plenty enough for me. We talked about Gideon, a little bit about Jephthah at the end of yesterday's chapter. We didn't really mention him. And then Samson. And then how about this? This is the last verse in the book of Judges. So Judges 21, 25, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Or in the more familiar King James, everyone did what was right in his own eyes or in their own eyes. And uh, when it says that Israel had no king, you need to hear that in, not in the Davidic sense or the Solomonic sense, you need to hear it in the theocratic sense. God's intent was that he would be their king. And so there was truly no king. This is not just a reflection on, oh, they didn't have a David, they didn't have a Solomon, they didn't have a Saul. No, they didn't have Yahweh. Yahweh was not their king. And so everybody was just like doing what, you know, relativistically, pluralistically was right in their own eyes. And so, yeah, we're out of that. We're, we're going to be talking about Samuel tomorrow, the child Samuel. And, and finally, we're going to get into a little bit of, of, of good news here. There's a... Um, a rainbow on the horizon. Love you all. See you tomorrow. Same time, same place. And um, let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you. We want to learn what it is to be strong, truly strong. Not strong in our own talents, in our own giftings, in our own maybe even physical strength. But Father, we want to be strong in you. And Father, when we are at our weakest, when our insufficiency is is right in front of us, and we know that without you, we are degraded and weak and blind and naked. Lord, help us to lean into you and to find that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Father, teach us how in our associations, in our relationships, in the raising of our children, to be binding ourselves, tying ourselves, attaching ourselves more and more to you, to your ways, to your law, to your love, to your goodness, and Father, to be cutting those ties, to be severing those ties that bind us to this world and to its ways. Um, Father, we need to learn how to do this. We need to be taught. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us, and, and hopefully in ways that are not so dark and so tragic as the way that Samson eventually learned that lesson. 
Father, help us to learn that lesson well before that. And Father, help us not to come to the end of our lives and think over and again what might have been, what might have been. Father, help us to take those exits, to take those those turns, those opportunities now by your grace so that we don't have to be continually rerouted. Father, lead us and guide us. You have promised that as many as are led by by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. Father, lead us by your Spirit is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.